Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 134. We'll begin with a brief summary of Hosea chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about children and loving the adolescent. Hosea is not just interested in buying any of the crap that Ephraim is peddling. Chapter 8 begins with, quote, Israel cries out to me, oh my God, we are devoted to you. But Hosea knows better, quote, Israel rejects what is good, an enemy shall pursue him. And it all comes down to idolatry again. But the thing is, on top of that, Ephraim's conceit that they can work this system until it breaks down, sin terribly, patch it, work it again, lather, rinse, repeat. But again, Hosea is not buying it. I think Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir Arthur Bomber Harris, quoted it best. They served the wind. And now, they are going to reap the whirlwind. Chapter 9 continues in this vein. No alliance with Egypt or Assyria will avert the disaster. Quote, they have been as grievously corrupt as in the days of Gibeah. They will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And if you remember that infamous incident where the Benjaminite men of Givah gang rape a Levite's concubine, it ended with a genocidal civil war of ten tribes against Benjamin, with the latter nearly wiped out. Quote, Ephraim is stricken, their stock is withered, they can produce no fruit. Even if they do bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. Oh, damn! Chapter 10 picks up on the withered vine metaphor and brings in some more. My fave, quote, Samaria's monarchy is vanishing like foam upon the water. But the message is still the same. Israel is doomed because of her wickedness. And it's not for lack of trying on God's part. Quote, I fell in love with Israel when he was still a child, and I've called him my son ever since Egypt. Thus they were called, but they went their own way. They sacrificed to Baalim and offered to carved images. I have pampered Ephraim, taking them in my arms, but they have ignored my healing care. But there is still hope. A parent still loves his child, even though his child is a venal jerk. Quote, I have had the change of heart. All my tenderness is stirred. I will not act on my wrath, will not turn to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in fury. And on that hopeful note, here endeth the lesson. You're not supposed to ask a parent who their favorite child is. My kids ask me that question all the time. They have theories about who their mother loves most as well, but I'll tell them that I have a favorite age and stage for children. I I think most parents do. Some prefer newborns, some prefer babies when they hit that two-month mark, when they start to smile and make sounds. Some go for toddlers, some even relish the terrible twos. I could go on, each distinct phase has its fans, its base, its hardcore adherence, and I could dig into my notes from graduate school on child and adolescent development and work in some Piaget and Erickson and Maslow, but nah. What I'm more interested in is exploring how the Tanakh categorizes rollicking youngsters. Generally, the Tanakh is not interested in psychosocial development of children. They're not interested really in the emotional life of of adults, actually. We have no indication, for example, what Avraham feels when he's leading his son Yitzchak up to the mountaintop, nor do we get a sense of what Yitzchak feels when his father hoists him up onto the altar to sacrifice him. You know, one would be hard-pressed to find really any 
significant column inches dedicated to any child in the Tanakh. When we do read about them, the story often focuses on the terrible decisions they make. Yosef in Genesis 37 and 38 clearly didn't endear himself to his brothers with his antics. He ended up at the bottom of a dry well and eventually sold into slavery. In 2 Kings chapter 2, a gang of young rapscallions poke fun at the receding hairline of the prophet Elisha. Elisha summons a she-bear who tears the boys limb from limb. But when I say young, how young? It's not clear how old Yitzchak was, or Yosef, or those miscreants outside Bethel, and not surprisingly, the language used to describe the children varies wildly. The Torah uses na'ar to describe Yitzchak moments before his father almost offers him up as a sacrifice, but the Torah also uses the same word to describe Moshe when the daughter of Pharaoh finds him floating in a box on the Nile. The Torah also employs yeled to describe Yosef, but it's safe to assume that Yosef was probably more of a cocky teenager than a small child when he you know, ran into trouble with his brothers. And by the by, 2 Kings uses ne'arim k'tanim to describe the jeering lads. This phrase, na'ar katan, appears 21 times in the Tanakh. Oftentimes it refers to an anonymous young servant lad, but Shlomo also refers to himself as a na'ar katan when God appears to him in a dream. Quote, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am a young lad with no experience in leadership. I think he was being hyperbolic here. Yeled is also modified by the descriptor Katan in Genesis 44, when Yosef, now a man and viceroy in Egypt, is quizzing his brothers about the family. And the brothers say, quote, We have an old father, and there is a child of his old age, the youngest. His full brother is dead, so that he alone is left of his mother, and his father dotes on him. The translation adds words, but the Hebrew phrase is yeled zikunim katan, with yeled zikunim referring more to the age of the father than the child. But katan lets us know that the child born to the older father is himself young. So perhaps the Tanakh could have used a little piaget, but I think it's safe to say that a yeled precedes a na'ar, and that a na'ar is generally older Probably a teenager. What the fuck is up, Kyle? No, what did you say? What the fuck, dude? Step the fuck up, Kyle. And I base this assumption on an instance where we discuss teen ruffians in the Torah, specifically the stubborn and rebellious child in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Again, the Torah's language is a bit muddy. Quote, if a man has a wayward and defiant son who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them even after they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town and the public place of his community. It doesn't go well for that son. If found to be, in fact, stubborn and rebellious, the townsfolk pelt the youngster with stones until dead. The word used there is simply ben, son, which leaves the age range quite open for interpretation until the Mishnah, which had some words about this business in Tractate Sanhedrin chapter 8, quote, a wayward and rebellious son. At what time can he become a wayward and rebellious son? From when he grows two hairs until the beard grows full. This refers to the lower beard, not the upper beard, but this expression is used since the sages spoke in clean language. As it says, quote, if a man have a son, a son and not a daughter, a son and not a man, a minor is exempted, for he has not entered the category of those obligated in the commandments. And what is the word the Mishnah uses to refer to minors? Katan. 
So a yelled is out, and so is a na'ar katan. So when we hear na'ar, we're on solid ground to assume that we're talking about teenagers. What the fuck is up, Kyle? No, what did you say? What the fuck, dude? Step the fuck up, G. Stanley Hall's landmark 1904 work, Adolescence, colon, Its Psychology and Its Relations to Physiology, Anthropology, Sociology, Sex, Crime, Religion, and Education, was the first to address the Sturm und Drang of adolescence, as well as adolescent preoccupation with attention-seeking, risky behavior, criminality, sex, and alcohol. He also correctly highlighted the tendency of adolescents toward depression, relational aggression, and increased susceptibility to negative messaging from the mass media. However, since 1904, social scientists and researchers have challenged many of Hall's assumptions about sexuality, human development, and religious orientation, as well as his assumption that adolescence is a universal stage of human development. Puberty is universal to humans, but adolescence and adulthood as a cultural construct is not. And adolescence is often regarded as a problem, though it necessarily and probably isn't. Nevertheless, we've either experienced adolescence ourselves, as it's constructed in late capitalist developed Western societies, or we know somebody who currently is. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Oh, crushed. You just bought one more right there. Well, I'm free the Saturday after that. Beyond that, I'm going to have to check my calendar. Good, because it's going to be filled. Though adolescents often get a bad rap, I am most fond of adolescence as an age and stage. Yes, adolescence. There's so much going on, and it goes on with such passion and earnestness. And yes, a lot of emotion and volume. It's a refined taste. It's not for everyone. So when Hosea tells us in chapter 11 that God loves his child Ephraim as a na'ar, it's natural to do a double take. God loves Ephraim when he's at his most difficult then, right then, he decides to pamper Ephraim to take him in his arms, when you know the first thing Ephraim's going to do is wriggle free and push God away. And Hosea is aware of that. God is aware of that. At every example where God reaches out to Ephraim, Ephraim smacks the hand away. And yet God says, quote, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? Render you like Tzvoyim? I have had a change of heart. All my tenderness is stirred. When Ephraim needs his parent the most, and pushes him away the hardest. God is not deterred. God sees through the tough guy act. Quote, I will not act on my wrath. I will not turn to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in fury. And it is because of this kind of love that God will ultimately prevail. God does not wag a finger or lecture. Well, actually, he kind of does. But he, he loves and, and does so in a superhuman way. He is God, of course. He never despairs, never flags, never wanes. Eventually, Ephraim will understand. And eventually, Ephraim will come home. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 135 when we conclude the book of Hosea with chapters 12 through 14.